Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. If you've been paying attention to the, the songs and the readings, you will maybe have um, caught on that we are talking about suffering this morning. We're in chapter 11 of Tim Keller's Hope in Times of Fear, our next to last sermon in the series, and we're looking at hope in the face of suffering. Shakespeare captures the ubiquity of suffering in our world. He says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry. New sorrows strike heaven on the face. And this week, I think it is as evident as ever that pain and misery is the norm in our world. If suffering, here's the question this morning, if suffering to one degree or another is inevitable, and it is, where and how do we find hope? Some, of course, do reach for God, many of you probably, because their pain when they suffer awakens them to something. It humbles them. It, it, it causes them to reach out for something more. In C.S. Lewis's words, their suffering has served to plant the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. So it awakens them. But others don't. Others do the opposite. They reject God, concluding that the only excuse for God is that he doesn't exist. This just heart, heartbreaking week. Many of us probably find in our hearts both, both of these impulses, maybe equally. On the one hand, I feel so angry. How could a God, a good God, let such immense evil endure? Maybe he isn't there at all. Maybe, maybe he is, but he's just asleep. I don't know if you found those kinds of thoughts rising. On the other hand, Peter's words in John 6 also rise within me. Where else can I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? I ache for him to come and to set his world right. How long, O oh Lord? So I find both of these things in me. I don't know if you can relate. So wherever you are in this moment, whether you find yourself rejecting God, or you find yourself raging at him, or agnostic about him, or aching for his presence. <laughs> I invite you to, we're going to look at a, a four-dimensional hope. We're going to try to build kind of a four-dimensional shelter. Not a neat answer for suffering, because there is none. There's no neat answer for suffering. I want to invite you into the walls of Christ's shelter. And there we're going to find this, that it's a safe place to cry. You're not alone there. And in that place, suffering isn't senseless. And finally, in that place, suffering will cease. So we're going to look at honesty in suffering, companionship in suffering, redemption within suffering, and then finally the end, the end of suffering. So first, would you look with me at just how we can suffer honestly in Christ? Most of you know by now that on May 19th, 2021, a grown man passed in front of my house and attacked my four-year-old son while he was playing in the yard. And I was home, and I saw it, and I charged out and I tackled him and I restrained him in the street for five minutes until the police arrived. And I had road rash on my elbow and there was bruises on my son's arm and that spot where it happened to this day just kind of stares back at me. 
And I'm haunted, especially early on, I was haunted with the question, where are you, Lord? Where were you in this? And I know you all have experiences like that, where you look back on them and you're just like, where were you? The months following that event for me were pretty dark emotionally. Um, I was able to glimpse hope and that my son was there and alive and well, you know, emotionally wounded, but not physically too wounded. But what about the victims in Buffalo? What about the victims in Uvalde? What about the victims of the SBC pastors? Decades of abuse and cover-up. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernst Becker warned against refusing to face these realities because they're hard to face. But he warned against refusing to face them. Refusing to face the inevitability of suffering, the, the randomness, seemingly randomness of suffering, the misery of suffering. We want to look the other way, but he warns us and he says, taking life seriously means something like this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. And otherwise, we have to look at how difficult and, and, and ubiquitous suffering really is. And we have to reconcile it with our worldview. Otherwise, it's not, it's not true. Near the beginning of his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul honestly names his sufferings. We're in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul says this. We heard it read. He says, Don't be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Today, we have language for those who are so burdened beyond their strength that they despair of life itself. It's called clinical depression. In his biography on Paul N.T. Wright notes that Paul is writing this letter having been beaten and imprisoned and rejected and starved and sleep deprived. He is emotionally and physically battered. And so Pastor Paul plainly tells the Corinthians church, I've been living in the deep and dark despair of depression, despairing of life itself. And that, says N.T. Wright, in a world where leaders are supposed to be strong, and socially respectable, and exemplary characters, that is exactly the point. Paul himself drives the point home in chapter 12 towards the end of the book. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my sufferings, in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then he is strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. How is Paul so free to be candid about his darkness, his despair, his suffering? Why is he not posturing and posing and pretending to be okay and to have it all together? Because he encountered and was branded with the glory of the risen Jesus. And it marked in his soul this, this truth. It is about God's power, not mine. So he's free to be honest with his weakness. Honesty with God is where to begin in our despair, in our suffering, in our depression. No matter how angry, no matter how hurt, no matter how confused or how broken or how just despairing we feel, we must be honest with him. And this too shall last, Advent's own K.J. Ramsey. Um, the book is back there. Um, by the way, I have a list of recommendations. I can't even begin to touch the surface of everything to say uh, the surface on suffering. So little sheet back there if you want uh, some resources on suffering. Um, K.J.'s book is on it. It's just such a beautiful meditation. 
She says, the Psalms show us being fiercely honest about not being enough is what creates and sustains intimacy with God. Paul understood this because he glimpsed the resurrected Christ. It had stripped him of the illusion of self-sufficiency and strength. He saw real strength. So the Psalms invite us into the same undoing. Again, in KJ's words, the Psalms teach us to approach God from a place of being undone instead of the prison of pretending we are self-sufficient and invulnerable. Because without vulnerability, she says, the truth that God's love is steadfast remains abstract. Does that make sense? Without vulnerability, the truth that God's love is steadfast remains abstract. It's only when we go to him in weakness and vulnerability and need that we realize it's about his power, not mine. So when we go to him in weakness, it's acknowledging that we trust him and that we need him. So the point is this, you don't have to have it all together in suffering. That's his job. In Christ's shelter, you have permission to be honest with God. You have permission to be honest with others. Like Paul, you can cry out your prayers unfiltered. The psalmist modeled this all over the place. We heard it read this morning in Psalm 88. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companion has become darkness. You ever pray that way? Let me put it simply. When we suffer or those we know suffer, it, it is okay not to be okay. The scriptures invite you to be not okay in God's direction. Second, the resurrection of Jesus means that we have companionship in suffering. We have solidarity in suffering. Having, having spoken of their sufferings, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to say this. He says, my ministry companions and I are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. So death is at work in us, but life is also at work, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also and bring us into his presence. Now, think about this. When Paul talks about carrying in his body the death of Jesus, what does he mean? He means it quite literally. Beaten for his preaching and for his faithfulness to Jesus, his own body, his own flesh bore scars akin to the wounds of Christ. Yet he says the life of Jesus is also present in us, working through us. This is just one place of hundreds, literally hundreds. Paul usually uses the language of in Christ or Christ in us, where Paul expresses that we have deep solidarity with Christ. He with us, we with him. Over a hundred times he alludes to this reality. His death is our death. His life is our life. This is why one pastor called suffering splinters from the cross of Christ. Splinters from the cross of Christ. Because we don't suffer alone. We suffer with him. He with us. In fact, it was through suffering that Jesus united himself to us. It was in the midst of agony in the garden that Jesus asked for the cup of suffering to pass from him. And God said no. In her book, again, K.J. points out what this means. It means that because of Jesus struggling with God in the garden, faithfulness now includes struggling with God. It's what Israel means, after all, to wrestle with God. There is a maddening, maddening, heartbreaking senselessness sometimes to suffering. It just doesn't make sense. Why me and not them? Why them and not me? It can feel like God is maddeningly silent during suffering sometimes, can't it? 
And the invitation then is to struggle with God honestly, as Jesus did. If possible, take this cup from me, but your will be done. And this is why we need to be not too quick to dismiss thoughts and prayers in the face of suffering. Because sometimes praying, struggling with God is the only consolation to be had. The famous theologian John Owen exemplifies this. He had 11 children and he outlived them all. And he turned to 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And he wrote about how his weakness drove him to prayer again and again. He writes these words. This is a man who lost 11 children. We cling wholeheartedly to Jesus and our minds are filled with thoughts of him and delight in him. And then spiritual power will flow from him to purify our hearts and increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, and sometimes fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Something like this happened to my friend Denise, who was, is one of the holiest people I know. She is truly a living saint. Just being around her, the grace and the humility of Jesus fills the room. One of those people. She's been gravely ill with cystic fibrosis for many years. Several years ago, she had an operation to insert a feeding tube so that she could keep down enough food in the form of paste to keep from starving to death. The operation did not go well, and the recovery was absolutely brutal, and life and death was hanging in the balance. And she privately told me this story with reverent and gentle and unassuming sincerity. She's not writing about it anywhere for anyone to see. This isn't really public. This is just a story between her and the Lord, which she gave me permission to share with you. From her hospital bed, which is was threatening to be her deathbed, she summoned just enough strength to lift her hand and pray, Jesus, I need you to hold my hand. And when she lowered her hand, she found right in the middle a droplet of blood. And in her soul, a deep renewal of her strength that sustained her in the coming months. I mean, she still suffered. She still is suffering, but she does not suffer alone. Now, why doesn't this kind of thing happen more often? It's one of the risks of telling these stories. I don't know. I, I don't know why one man strikes gold and another doesn't, but I know that the man who strikes gold reminds all of us that the earth is laced with hidden treasure, right? Jesus is present. And I don't know why he makes his presence known this way or that way to this person or that person. I don't know. But he longs to companion us in our suffering. He does. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us that he may suffer with us, shedding the treasure of his blood on this earth. The resurrection means that he is present here, now, sharing in your suffering, drawing near to the brokenhearted. And sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't. But you do have solidarity in suffering. You do. Third, because of the resurrection, you also have redemption within suffering. In his theology of suffering in 2 Corinthians, Paul insists on this time and time again. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 9, suffering was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Chapter 4, 10, it is so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Chapter 12, 9 and 10, a summary of his theology of redemptive suffering, Paul says this, It is so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 
So here again is the great reversal that we've talked about in this series. It's just this, you know, peering back into the story of Israel, the, the classic example is the story of Joseph. Most of you know the story. He's sold into slavery by his brothers who just wished him dead because they hated him, they betrayed him. Joseph then ends up being used by God to save thousands of people from famine, including his own brothers that had betrayed him. And then he says this to his brothers, forgiving them. He says, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this hints at the great reversal, again, that we've been talking about, Christ's death and resurrection. Through the greatest suffering came the greatest glory. And now the the death and resurrection shaped kingdom of God down is up and up is down and strength is weakness and glory is humility. Grace through suffering. That's the worldview of the Beatitudes, which Cindy read this morning. It's, It's, what? When you hear them, what? It only makes sense through the lens of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, this is a tricky one, this point, because it is not the place to start with those who are suffering. The place to start is with presence, with empathy, with tears, silence probably. But eventually, at the proper time, it is a comfort. It is a comfort for sufferers to know that God is working in and through the suffering to redeem it. Don't make the mistake, though, of thinking that God using suffering means God likes suffering. That's not true at all. When Jesus, as God in the flesh, arrives at the grave of his friend Lazarus, what does he do? He's deeply moved, the text says. The Greek might just as easily be translated, he bellowed with anger. The Bible is quite clear that death in all its forms is the enemy of God. So after a a tsunami in 2004 killed hundreds of thousands of people, David Bentley Hart wrote these words. He said, our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. When I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The power of God's sovereignty and his redemption extends even into suffering and death. As he brings good out of evil, that doesn't mean he likes it. Now, in one sense, we know this is true. Um, J.K. Rowling, in her Harvard commencement address, called it the fringe benefits of failure. You know, there's a widely accepted pattern in the world that failures become our best teachers if we'll let them, you know, clarifying who we are and what our strengths are, and they teach us valuable lessons. Okay. But the Bible's promise far exceeds that. And we see it in Paul's theology of suffering, namely that our suffering tends to deepen our connection, our reliance, our love, and our solidarity with Jesus and produce in us character qualities that actually fit us for the abundant life with him. Paul summarizes this in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit which He has given us. Paul is not saying, in every cloud there's a silver lining. That that simply doesn't hold up next to the horrible tragedies like we've seen this week. I mean, failures teach us lessons. It's, It's cold comfort when someone is suffering something simply too terrible to balance out in a this worldly analysis. 
Rather, he is saying that suffering in solidarity with Christ ultimately produces hope, hope that will not disappoint, which is what? Hope that suffering will end. That's the last point. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 to say this, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is being prepared, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now it's interesting he uses those words. He's come full circle here. In chapter 1, Paul confesses he has been burdened beyond measure. Remember that when he's despairing and depressed? The Greek word he uses for burden is bareo, for weight. Weight. Now, in chapter 4, his afflictions are preparing him for an eternal bareo, weight, an eternal glory, the same word. And then he uses the Greek word twice, beyond, beyond measure. He's saying there's the weight of our suffering, but God is bringing us to a weight of glory that is beyond, beyond this weight of suffering. Now, again, we don't want to move too fast here, especially in the midst of fresh and acute suffering. It can be a religious way of short-circuiting the need for others and ourselves to wrestle and struggle honestly with God and feel our feelings and lament and rage at Him if we must. But still, there is a profound resiliency that comes, and it arises in Paul. We see it. It can arise in us, too, from the belief that when we are joined to Christ, our sufferings today are not only going to be redeemed and used to shape us into his image, they're going to give way. They're going to end. They're going to cease to an eternal glory. And all suffering is going to be over. And in the words of Teresa of Avila, who's kind of repeating what Paul says here, from heaven even the most miserable life will look like one night in an inconvenient hotel. We don't move too quickly there, but it's true. That from the perspective of eternity looking back, once God has redeemed our sufferings and wiped every tear, So you can behold his glory today through prayer, struggling in prayer honestly, as John Owen testifies. But one day, as our liturgy will remind us shortly, we shall see our Lord face to face. And then we shall live in the reality that Revelation 21 anticipates. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's the end of the story. There will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more cystic fibrosis. There will be no more depression. There will be no more infertility. There will be no more SBC abuse. Not just the SBC. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more active shooters. For the old order of things will pass away. So as you suffer, that's the invitation. Suffer in this shelter of the risen Christ. Honesty in suffering, companionship in suffering, redemption within suffering. And then, Lord, please hasten the day, the end of suffering. That's our hope. So, Father, we do bring our burden to you. And we ask how long. We pray for you to come. The final words of the story, come Lord Jesus. And then you say to your church, surely I am coming soon. And we feel like it's about time. Put an end to the violence. In the meantime, would you help us to suffer with you? 
Would you remind each of us in our own forms of suffering that you are with us? Would you encourage us deep within? And then would you help us to be a comfort around us, to those around us who are suffering? We do hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.